Betty Jane Camp with Northwest Parkinson's Foundation and Parkinson's and Poetry. And I have a really cool guest today, my own brother, Jamie Camp. Hey. Hey, thank you so much for having me on the podcast, finally. I am very excited to dive into some poetry, Parkinson's, and science. That's right. Oh, that's a new slogan there yep. for the podcast. Yep, I'm also doing marketing. Okay, <laughs> so, um, yeah, this has actually been a long time coming because you and I have been back and forth about um, having you kind of dissect some heady scientific journals, some articles about Parkinson's because I think I've found them as I go to create the weekly newsletter with our Parkinson's news updates and want to share them but find the language just absolutely inaccessible. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping to have someone such as yourself serve as kind of translator, basically. And I think that's that's something I'm really looking forward to in our call is that we're going to talk about um, such an article about Parkinson's. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm looking forward to it. It's been years since I've been involved with the harder sciences that are typically associated with Parkinson's disease research. But I think my experience over the last six years diving into scientific, scientific journal articles, I think I can shed some light on why there's a disconnect there, how it's easier to interpret it for a lay audience and things like that. So I'm looking forward to it. Yay. Um, but first, Let's have you just go ahead and, and read the poem slash song, the lyrics that you brought to us today. Yes, absolutely. So this is a song called By This River by Brian Inu. And let me read it first, and then we can talk about why I chose it. Does that sound good? Yeah, sounds good. Okay. Here we are, stuck by this river, you and I underneath the sky that's ever falling down, 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 ever falling down. Through the day, as if on an ocean, waiting here, always failing to remember why we came, came, came. I wonder why we came. You talk to me as if from a distance, and I reply with impressions chosen from another time, 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 from another time. And that is how it goes. It is a very short song, as you can tell. Um, Brian Eno's uh, beautiful voice over the ambient music carries it on to um, three minutes, if you can believe it or not. But I have always loved this song. I first was introduced to it via a, another song that sampled it. And this was a song called Never Falling Down by Living Legends, who are a very uh, esteemed hip-hop group. And the sample really caught my eye. And, of course, upon listening to it, it shared the same strong poetic tone that Never Falling Down had as well. And I thought it would be a good one to read because I don't usually come across many poems in general. I just am not reading poems on my my day-to-day -day life but i remember this song 
because of how poetic the lyrics were and it kind of read in a concise way that I, some of the poems I've read in the past read. And it's a very dreamy song lyric with a, a lot of different things you can extract from it. And that's what I love about shorter song lyrics that still have an impact is you can get a lot from it despite it not being, you know, significantly long or anything like that. Dreamy is a great way to describe it. And the fact that it's ambient, I'm assuming it it feels very dreamy too in song form. Yes, exactly. Um, and that's how I like some, a lot of music I listen to does tend to pull me out of a current situation and I think this song does an effective job of, at that. You know, that's really cool because not only would I say that, that poetry can do the same thing, I actually think that if you were to distinguish between poetry and and music and song lyrics, I, I just don't, I think you'd come up kind of short other than, you know, the tangible medium. The differences of listening to reading or but again i mean we kind of touched on this separately is that uh poetry is usually read right like even even when you get into um contemporary poetry when you when you write it um i think it really does need to be read out loud but but poems themselves when when you're reading them I think a side effect can often be that you're forced to be present. You mentioned that a song, you listen to songs that can kind of pull you out. And a poem does that too, but it pulls you out and then it makes you kind of settle back in, you know, and really, really align with, with your moment. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's about attention for sure. And then a song commands your attention. Right, because it's happening mm -hmm. right now. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. I, I And also I wanted to just nod to the, you know, sort of long impact of a short poem or a short song. That's a real thing. It's a very real thing. You know, qual mm -hmm. quality, quantity, whatever you want to say about it. Yeah, ex exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, you are going to tell us about an article today. Um, will you give me the, the title again? Yeah, so this is an article I found in the Journal of Neuroscience. It is titled, The Cumulative Effect of Transient Synchrony States on Motor Performance in Parkinson's Disease. And this is going to be Tinkhauser et al. Uh, 2020, I was looking for an article that was somewhat recent. I like to see um, where some of these journals are in terms of um, up-to-date research. Of course, we could always go through a um, benchmark article that came out five to ten years ago, but I, I think it's it can be more fun to, to talk about what's what's new and what's um, kind of driving current research. Yeah, I'm wondering if we're going to find any lyricism in this article. What do you think? You know, I would say that it's doubtful for um, <laughs> lyricism, but we are going to 
to get some interesting things about frequencies. So there's there's some room for music. Oh, I like that. That's a good tie-in. <laughs> That's good. Um, okay, well, first, before you dive into the article, will you share a little bit about your your academic and professional background? Yes, absolutely. So when I got into my undergraduate experience, when it first started going as a, a freshman in college, I knew right away that I was dedicated to psychology, and I immediately surrounded myself with um, the psych classes, and that includes behavioral neuroscience. And I think once I got the ball rolling with the science side of psychology at my undergrad, Western Washington University, which has an amazing psychology program, I cannot speak um, highly enough to it. And I was involved with a number of professors doing the um, extracurricular research, being a research assistant, working with grad students, pretty much doing as much as I can to get involved as much as possible. And I was lucky enough to be a part of a couple uh, publications. So I have gone through the journal submission uh, process before. So that's why I feel like I am able to speak on it to some degree. Of course, it was um, more focused on personality psychology and leadership psychology. Those were the two areas that I spent most of my time as far as research goes. Um, and But with that said, I do feel competent to be able to dive into one of these Parkinson's disease um, research articles and still be able to extract a good amount that the average person who is not reading these types of articles on a daily basis might not be able to do or might not be interested in or just might not even be aware of. And I think those are all things that I can uh, cover pretty well. And right now I am nearing the end of my Master's of Science in Industrial Organizational Psychology, and I will be graduating this summer once we are all out of this um, coronavirus situation. Hopefully, I will be able to walk, and it will be a nice completion to my academic career. And in the future, who knows, maybe I will uh, pursue a, a PhD in one of these uh, psychology fields as well, but that is uh, for another day. Yeah, I should have shared that Jamie and I are calling from down the West Coast. I'm in uh, Western Washington State, and Jamie, you are in the uh, Los Angeles area. Correct. Yeah, so sheltering in place um, are both things we're practicing separately anyway. But, um, but yeah, our call is, is happening amid a lot of things right now, and so it's, I think it's really cool that we can take this time to give some people something to listen to and something to learn and and um, maybe a new song, too, actually. I'm going to go listen to this song after our chat, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and it won't be the last time. It's one of those songs you're going to put on three or four times. I, I love those, actually, yeah, I, and I'm totally that person that will reread or re-listen or re-watch. Like, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Awesome. Bring me the familiar. I am... Jamie, I was wondering, I don't know if I've asked you this before or not, but did you, did you ever entertain studying neuropsych in undergrad or grad, I guess, for that matter? 
Yeah, so there is a behavioral neuroscience program at Western, and it is a great program. And the honestly, one of the main hesitations from even playing with the idea of uh, pursuing that as my degree was the fact that um, by the time I was thinking about it, I think I was a junior or end of my sophomore year, and neuroscience does require um, the chemistry series, I believe, and a part of the bio series. It just has so many other uh, prereqs that you have to take. I think that would have ended up pushing me back um, a year, if not a year and a half more of school. And I was already so committed to the social psych side of things. But absolutely, I mean, neuroscience is something that I still read about on my own because I have such an interest in it. I mean, it's one of the most complex yet applicable topics there is in the scientific literature, and it's going to continue to be um, on the emerging ends as we um, move forward and learn more about the brain. Yeah, I mean, I was wondering, too, if how much of your um – choice of study was motivated by, I'm guessing, more about your personal interest than about dad's Parkinson's diagnosis? You know, that's something that I wonder myself. I I think that my interest in psychology is, is mostly aligned with my personality, and I think that a lot of that comes from genetics, like just the way my, my brain was wired. I'm naturally a person who likes to observe, sit, think, take things in. I'm very analytical. I take my time before sharing an opinion, especially if it's a critical one. So I think psychology just fit my personality. Everything about it was, um, I always found psychology interesting. I never had a problem doing homework. I never had problems reading for it, and it just came natural. As for the motivation because my father has Parkinson's, that would have definitely propelled me to pursue, pursue neuroscience further if I had gotten into it earlier. I, the thing about neuroscience is you really, at least for me, I didn't hear about it because it's sort of, it's treated as a subfield, at least at Western it was, and I know at a lot of schools, it's a subfield of psych a lot of the time. And because it also has the, uh, has feet in other areas like biology, for example, um, it does get um, kind of treated a little bit differently and it flies under the radar a little bit more often. Um, but I think if I did end up studying it, I think with uh, dad's, um, my background with being familiar with Parkinson's, I mean, Parkinson's is constantly used as an example. I remember in just the intro classes, Parkinson's is always referenced as, um, you know, on, on the forefront of the neuroscience studies and precedents and whatnot. So, yeah, I, there's definitely a, another world where, where I'm motivated from a, a family member with uh, Parkinson's to, to study neuroscience. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, because it's pretty obvious my professional life is motivated by a personal experience, but here I am layering poetry in with it, you know, so um, I was wondering how you, how that kind of laid out for you, the balance between, between the personal um, choice and then the personality, I guess. 
Um, yeah. I, I yeah. can speak on that a little bit. I think that, like I was saying, psych fits me so well and also happens to be such a broad topic, especially social psych, that my interests across the board can be plugged into psych here or there. If I have, a, you know, an interest of something about the, the effects of, you know, music in, in social groups or social settings, you know, there's there's research on that. There's there's research on pretty much any topic of of personal interest in psych. So it really goes hand in hand with without me having to to force anything, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, it totally does make sense. I just yeah, and I think another it's it's actually coming back to that whole, you know, individuality piece, which is that I think being the eldest or or a woman or, you know, there are so many factors and this is where your social psych will flare up or something. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think I've always felt guilty about pursuing things that are not necessarily neuroscience, right? Something that would be at least culturally really obviously tied to serving the cause of improving life, improving understanding of those with Parkinson's, and I think it took me just actually going through cycles of digging into what really does move me every day mm-hmm. as a person, mm-hmm. and also then being open to to making those connections that actually exist independent of me, that are, are just there, um, like Parkinson's and poetry. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just we all have different roads. And um, it's interesting that here we are at an intersection just between the two of us. Yeah, and I think you're hinting at a, a really great point about the crossroad between what you are sort of culturally enabled to pursue or enjoy or um, basically work with for whatever you want to put it, and then your kind of DNA, your what you're genetically um, motivated to pursue whether or not you're conscious of it. Like for you, I feel like, um, your personality fits poetry very well in a number of regards. And then on to layer it with the Parkinson side comes from your cultural upbringing. The, like you said, the things like being an older sister, being a woman, being a daughter of someone with Parkinson's, all of those work together, you know, and of, of course we could debate on and on about um, wh- where those two meet up as 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 far as the fifty fifty goes of um, uh, nature and nurture, but of, of course it's it's a synchronization, and I th- I think this podcast is a perfect perfect example of that. Yeah, good point. <laughs> well, and actually, I'm interested in hearing what you have to say too about the article, the details itself, I'm, I wanted to have a conversation not to get in the weeds because neither of us are um, qual- really qualified to analyze. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, but more in, in the accessibility piece, it's something that I keep running up against in finding articles for our, our weekly newsletter that goes out to folks online is just, you mm-hmm. know, I'll come across these really great, titles about breaking news, you know, groundbreaking research in uh, the Parkinson's fields and um, can't either can't understand it easily enough or 
um, literally can't open it, right, because of restrictions. And yeah. I, you know, so I was wondering, actually, is that, for one, okay, so one question, is the restricted access piece mm-hmm. mostly just for these researchers being able to make some sort of income off of their work? No, um, I would I would argue no to that question. Okay, go, keep going. Okay, and then also as far as does it just depend on the journal and is that their stylistic choice on how you said lay like how lay person friendly mm-hmm. their language is in yeah. translating their scientific findings? That's just a style. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, okay. Um. Yeah. So. Uh, any more to add before I begin? No, no, that's, that's all I got. Okay, so let me overlay this or, or preface this with just kind of setting the conceptual piece for academic journal articles. They are first and foremost written by researchers for researchers. They're writing for their peers. That's why they call them peer-reviewed articles is because other researchers are the ones who are going to be um, reviewing and critiquing and that is the process, the peer review process of getting um, your research submitted to a journal. And as you kind of asked about, you know, it varies very much journal to journal. The various themed journals, like, um, for example, Journal of Neuroscience is going to have a different set of um, requirements and basically a filtering system with an editorial board that goes over um, their requirements for an article. And that process, I mean, the, the entire process, you have to keep in mind, can take years and years to complete, years to submit. And even if you get it approved, there might be edits that need to be made uh, as requested by the journal in order to uh, get it um, officially published. Um, of course, there's the other side of that, which I have been a process, a part of a process. I was part of a publication process that took uh, a little under a, a year, which uh, to me, it, it felt fast. But um, after it was all over. I looked back and it was like there are a lot of moving uh, steps to getting things published. So, yeah, let me just go back to that. So written by and for research, for researchers, that's something that's really important to keep in mind because that's when, say, say you're reading like a a pop sci article, something that that catches the everyday news readers attention and they're reading through and they see that, oh, the researchers found so and so. And let's say that this reader has an abnormally critical mind and they want to go pursue that. And, okay, so they want to look up the original article and they found it, but they don't have access to it. So the no access thing, or you pay, like, you know, an abnormally large sum for um, an article, which is typically $40 or so, which nobody's going to pay. Nobody even pays that for, like, a yearly subscription typically, so nobody's going to pay it for one article. But that's not there for the um, researchers to monetize. It's there to show that, at least from my perspective, that the reader is serious in pursuing this knowledge because it's not free to the public because it's not generally meant to the public. That's why these articles are free to a person such as myself who is in a uh, graduate program or in the undergraduate programs, you'll get access to these articles in bulk because they, the researchers, the journals, they know that this is part of the process of getting more researchers involved is you have to make them accessible for the students. Um, hmm. 
so anyway, let's say the, the, this reader did have access to the article. So then they're opening up an article with a huge amount of what most people would consider jargon. They're unable to uh, decipher, you know, a couple sentences, let alone the the abstract. And this is I, I hear this all the time from people who are not involved in academia or academic research that this is done to um, sort of not mislead, but to detract readers away from wanting to read this. That in, in no way is the intention of uh, researchers and the writers, the people who are, who are writing these articles. It, it's sort of a, a complex conversation, but basically these articles are not one-off. They didn't come up with this language one time and all of a sudden things got convoluted instantly. That goes back to the audience that supposed that this um, research is meant to read. This audience is familiar because they've been reading these terms. They're familiar with it, so they don't have to go back every every time they they come across a new vocab word or a new uh, research term because they're already involved in the meta of where this research is. So I think that that's a really common misconception. I mean, I just heard it again the other day. Uh, from a friend of mine. So it's, that's on, that's on the forefront. And I, I think a lot of people should avoid this hostility towards the uh, research community because that is in no way their, their intention. And that is sort of the reason why I don't mind too many pop sci articles is because they do serve a purpose. They, they serve the purpose of being the liaison between the um, kind of higher level research community and the uh, lay person sort of rambled there for a second. Does that, does that cover some of the points? Yeah, no, it, it definitely does. And I think your emphasis on it's not, well, I mean, first of all, you talk about scientific communities intentions, which is not to deter any person from reading their work. Absolutely. Outright. And that it's actually, I don't know. I don't think I quite grasped that through my years of any interaction with the academic community is um, is that, you know, you're reading this long chain of, yeah, kind of super formal writing that is referencing back or referencing forward, really, to a specific audience, research for researchers. I know mm -hmm. that helps that helps me understand it better than I can understand it. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, just like I'm sure some uh, writing classes you've had and things you've taught people, I, I know I've discussed this with you, is when you're writing, one of the first things you have to think about is who are you writing for? Yeah. And I think as a yeah, reader... I would, argue, I would argue that it actually depends. I, normally, I think a couple of years ago, I would have absolutely agreed with that, but I actually think that especially in creative. So, like, yeah, creative. I, I was actually going to stop myself there and, and say aside from creative writing. Okay, okay, fair enough. But generally, if you're writing for a specific intention or, like, you are, you have an idea in your mind that this is intended for a specific group of people, I think that needs to be narrowed down. And as a reader, I think if if you are reading especially anything scientific, you should think about um, 
who that audience was intended for as well. Yeah. That helps. Like I said, now I feel like I can go, I can go forward into the internet and uh, just feel a little bit less impatient with the scientific journal. Yeah. You can always, yeah, take it, take a stroll down a Google scholar. I feel like that is just the most accessible way to get up to date um, and a bulk of um, academic journal articles. Um, however, just like we were, I was, we were mentioning, um, most of the time the, the full article is not available, but I mean, you right. can get an abstract and likely results and whatnot just from, uh, clicking on the, the first page, but you can also scroll down and on the right side, there'll be a link to a PDF if that's what you're looking for. If you want to actually read through the whole, you know, 40 plus pages. Um, more props yeah. do. Can you, let's take a look at the article and can you mm-hmm. define even just these terms that might seem basic to you, like abstract and, um. Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. So these, the thing about, um, academic articles is that while they are very dense and they are filled with jargon, to some extent, for lack of a better word, they do have a structure. And once you have an idea of how that structure works and where they place certain ideas in that structure, um, you're able to pick up on the pattern of how they're written. And you are, it's easier to read through and digest them in a more effective manner. Um, so... In other words, if I'm reading through an article, an APA um, academic article, the abstract is generally where, where you're looking at first. This is the summary of the article. It's essentially giving you um, what did they do, what's the point, who is, who, who, what was the experiment, and what were the results. That's basically it. So it'll give you a really concise version. And... Reading through there, if if the first part makes sense, you don't have too many questions. It's answering stuff for you. Then then uh, you know read read no further. You you can get a gist, especially if you're just cross referencing what you maybe saw in a, a pop sci article. Because sometimes you do want to check those pop sci articles because they are summarizing these, and you never know their their intentions as well. And that's that's a whole other conversation. But yeah, the abstract is a good place to start, and then it always falls into the introduction, which um, also, in especially in a thesis, is also the literature review. So the introduction will go over um, recent history to longer history of where these ideas are coming from, uh, the previous research associated with their uh, motivations to write this article. So let's say if you are uh, pursuing a particular um area of Parkinson's and the article you're reading, um, you want more from it, you can go to the intro and it'll have all the recent studies typically cited there. So you can always go down a rabbit hole that way if you'd like about a particular topic. And then it moves to the method section, which will describe uh, the sample that that was involved in the experiment, details surrounding uh, the demographics or what comprises the sample and then on to how they carried out the methods and then on to the results 
And the, the funny thing about the results, so the results is followed by the discussion. Oftentimes people go to results for answers, especially people who are not typically reading the uh, academic articles regularly. Because if you go to you go straight to results, especially on a, a neuroscience Parkinson's article, you're going to get a lot of complex numbers and statistics that actually won't have like, you know, a lot of people are looking for, we found this. This did this, and that's usually not actually in the results. You want to go to the uh, discussion section, which follows that. And the discussion will have implications, limitations, uh, future research ideas, and things like that. So I'm, I'm a big d discussion reader, and this article that we're going to talk about today um, is actually a fantastic example um, of, of one that I, I will typically read in this fashion. All right. Well, having said all that, thank you, first of all, for the tour, because I actually think that that's pretty valuable, even if you are familiar with articles. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, like, I sometimes go towards the um, results, and then I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's what? just not, yeah, it's, it's not necessary. Not always. Um, so, yeah, go ahead and, and give us maybe the abstract or, or your version of an abstract for this article. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. Anytime I go back into reading some Parkinson's disease research, you know, I don't do it very often, but sometimes I like to check in and see where some of the research is at because, you know, as a person with a family member with Parkinson's, I like to see um, where the science is heading and maybe any updates and stuff like that. Of course, when you're reading recent articles like this, February 2020, even if they found like, let's say, a miracle drug or something, something like that, that has insane effects. It's such a recent, uh, recent article that, um, uh, implications of, of anything, um, being carried out as far as a, um, let's say, you know, a, a prescription drug or something like that, it would, it would still take months to years. So it, it's, it's still exciting and it, it, it's fun to read on, but of course it's, it's important to keep in mind that, uh, th this is a long process. But yeah, so I'll, I'll read the title one more time. The Cumulative Effect of Transient Synchrony States on Motor Performance in Parkinson's Disease. So right off the bat, we can tell that this is going to be about the um, the kind of uh, a motor neuron side of uh, Parkinson's. Parkinson's disease is so, engulfs so many different areas. I mean, just looking through uh, the beginning of it, we've already... Um, got um, notions of beta frequency band activity in the basal ganglia of patients with Parkinson's disease associated with impaired motor performance. So that's looking at one, a part, a deep part of the brain as it's associated with impaired motor performance. That's nothing new, especially to listeners familiar with Parkinson's. We know of this connection, but the beginning is the interesting part. Bursts of beta frequency band activity. So that's referring to the um, electrical waves that go on in our brain. As we most of us know, the brain does have qu quite a bit of uh, electrical um, frequency going on. Like uh, think of EEG therapy, for example, where they're uh, testing uh, different um, different frequencies of electricity going through the brain and how, as that relates to um, mental health disorders. So this is uh, studying something similar, 
but but different because of how these beta frequencies are affecting movement essentially so beta frequencies so let's think about an electrical current going through your brain it happens constantly it's how neuro uh, neurons get fired it's how your your thoughts happen everything you do it, it with these um sort of different frequencies and this beta frequency they're saying is associated with the impaired movements so when the beta let's say a beta wavelength is going through the basal ganglia a deep part of the brain associated with parkinson's there's movement disorders so the point of this experiment was to look a little bit further into how wavelengths are beta wavelengths are impacting motor performance and this one was really very intriguing to me because i know just observing our dad that it's the the movements come and go i think as most people know with parkinson's right the the movements it's not all gone at once and it doesn't all come back at once there are times when you're able to move better than other times and this article is suggesting that bursts of the beta frequency is what's making it worse. So not just when you have some beta waves go through, but when you have them in bursts or clusters or one being fired off uh, closer to the last. And I thought that that was very interesting because it's looking at the connection between like a probability of those bursts happening and how can we identify this probability? And I think it's also worth uh, noting that um, the uh, drug uh, levodopa is known to reduce the probability of these bursts. So that was a link that is uh, clearly not separate and is associated with it. So this article is, is bringing more light to how these um, electrical currents are affecting Parkinson's. And to me, that's very exciting because the, it, Parkinson's is such a complex disease being this deep in the brain and this difficult to study. And it's not as simple as different neurotransmitters like dopamine uh, coming and going. There's a lot more at work here. It's, it's a much more uh, comprehensive problem and this is adding to the conversation, essentially. Wow. Okay, well, for I can see, as you were breaking this down, I can see or imagine it as this is relating to the brain, to the person with Parkinson's. And this is specific to people with CBS, right, this study? This one is, they, they did receive some treatment. I don't. I'd have to check this sample again. I, I don't think the entire sample had DBS, but I need to look. Oh, oh, okay. I thought for some reason it was. Okay, interesting. So um, that was. Oh, they do. They have um, they have STN DBS. Yeah. Okay. You're right. Yep. F Fifteen pa patients with um, PD who underwent the DBS surgery. Which is deep brain stimulation surgery. If you're not familiar with mm -hmm. that, and Jamie, you said STN, which is sub. What is that? Is that part of the brain? Subthalamus something? Yes, I think I think you're onto it. I can't I can't speak to that. <laughs> this is where we uh yeah 
where our yeah. uh, neuroscience sort of falls away. But um. Oh yeah, happens quickly. Well, I'll I'll correct it and leave it in the uh, uh, episode description. But um, so that was just the title, though, right? That you broke down for us. That wasn't even getting into the study. That. Um, you you know the title I, I probably could have broke down even more, but on, honestly, just just reading, um, motor performance, I, I started uh reading down in, into the article a bit. That that was uh, that was my general general summary. That that's how I would describe the article to say a friend of mine. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And also. I meant to ask you, would you say a lay person is just basically someone outside or not participating actively in the academic um, pursuits of the scientific community? Yeah, and I don't mean to, you know, propagate lay person or even encourage using that term. It's just like sometimes it's easier as a shorthand way of saying somebody who, yeah, is is not affiliated with the – sort of research side of science. Um, you can absolutely be, you know, a scientific-minded person and be a part of the scientific community in other ways. So I would never say that lay people are not in the scientific community. Okay. It just means that you're not a researcher? Well, basically, you're not in academia. You're not in academia. Okay. That's how that's how yeah. I would say. It. I know that that conversation as well. I'm sure you know you could ask any humanities oriented person probably would have have more to say on a topic such as that. Well, it's interesting because you will, at least in my experience in the humanities, you really wouldn't spend any time distinguishing lay people. You know what I mean from the writers or or content producers of of the humanities, at least. Maybe when you start to get into social sciences, I'm sure that would come up, but I don't know. But I was, as you were talking, this was a little bit ago, you were talking about how when you approach uh, an article, you can kind of pick out threads of a pattern. And um, and for those who might be a little disoriented when they find an article, mm-hmm. you know, even even where to start seems counterintuitive sometimes. But um I would say the same is true for a poem. I I can't Hmm. tell you when I have talked to people about poetry who are not maybe um, even mildly into it. They're kind of like, I don't get it, you know, and I talked to another poet about this briefly in another episode, but um, that I'll post soon. And, and I think that that sort of, disorienting intimidation even or just boredom that people can get with um i don't know if you would call it genre specific text but writing that seems like it's not made for you right like a scientific article or a poem can sometimes feel like alienating which is weird because i Mm -hmm. feel like actually it's there to be connective for one purpose Mm -hmm. or another yeah that was exactly what i was going to say as well yeah, yeah, and that's—I don't know if there's really anything to be done about that except to encourage people to try it out for themselves, right? Like, give, like I—I I like to um, say that I think poems just, you know, happen. Like, it's a poem is someone taking the time to record or translate something that is 
happening in them or or to them or you know or has happened even if it's a story or a retelling um and that no one is really outside of that process you know whereas i think Mm -hmm. you have you do have these kind of hierarchies within academia i would say especially science and that's where i think if you don't mind before we uh wrap up our conversation i'd love to hear you talk a little bit about you said you referenced pop sci can you tell us what that Mm -hmm. actually stands for yeah, so popular science, these are typically the magazines, but now inter- internet um, websites or um, blogs or basically these are the more accessible versions of journals, um, like Psychology Today, for example. I think most people have spent some time on psychology today. So these, these are ones that you would see in your Apple News or th- these are linked on, on Facebook or something like that. Not to say that they aren't uh, scientifically valid. Actually, one of my professors at Western has a very cool blog on, I think it's psychology today. So these are generally, generally guided by scientists. However, they are not the original research. These are articles with a topic that has already been it's – it's been edited and written in a much more digestible way. And I think this is what most people are familiar with, and this is what most people should um, sort of stick towards because it's easier to get the information you're looking for. Uh, however, if you are somebody who – um, is re- starting to really enjoy popular science and accessible science, and you find yourself um, looking to kind of get more on the cutting edge, that's when I think the reading journal articles on in your free time starts to happen. Uh, because, no yeah, once once you start start to catch it earlier, then you, you get it before it goes on to popular science, and that's why there is a gateway between um, the everyday reader and being able to even access those early articles because they, they typically do want them to, to stay within research hands um, because, you know, people can go on and, and incite them as they wish. Um, the only thing I would caution with uh, popular science, and this this probably would not apply to psychology today, but there are, I mean, it's it's getting more and more widespread. Like, think about the massive uh, Facebook pages for example there's science pages that were created by you know who knows what person and and their background and they will release articles with um, some sort of scientific foundation however the way that that article may be portrayed um, is is not necessarily uh, conducive to the original researchers intention and that's something that I would say is a really important skill as a sort of a critical reader is being able to identify, okay, is this the original intention of this study? Is this person manipulating findings to a a specific purpose or a specific agenda? And that's where the conversation then turns into using science for uh, political effort, especially statistics. I mean, statistics can be uh, blown in, a number of different ways. So I think as a reader, especially going through pop sci within other 
um, articles, like a CNN article or something like that, that cites a uh, science article, you need to be careful about the way that they are interpreting it and telling it to you. And I'm not saying that they have bad intentions either, but they they they're typically different intentions than the researchers at, at least. So yeah, when I say popular science, I just mean the, the general uh, scientific articles you'll see you'll see day to day that aren't a kind of rigid structured um, journal article. Which ironically or not, I guess makes them more approachable, really more digestible. But you know what comes with you know your loss of. Um, basically difficulty in interpreting this information, um, the price you pay is potentially just misinterpretation and misinformation. And I think that um, with the COVID-19 crisis, we're, most people are coming up against this. I, from what I've understand, what I'm understanding is that um, there's just this onslaught of it just lies, <laughs> just uh, scientific um yeah i mean and i think if you're to ask me a lot of that is because of the traffic that it garners a lot of pop sci it goes i mean it's it's called popular psych or uh, popular science for a reason it's popular it's what's gaining attention it's where people's minds are being drawn towards this is one of the reason why food science is always associated with pop sci because it is diet, dietary trends and whatnot are always going to be popular. So they're always going to be garnering new research in a new, um, food, online food magazine type of source. So now that, uh, right now coronavirus and infectious disease is basically on the, on the forefront, um, of everybody, everybody's minds right now. So there's going to be misinformation printed. There's going to be misleading articles, misleading titles out there simply because if you're going to generate uh, ad revenue. I mean, we're in a capitalist society. So if you can if you can generate interest, you can generate traffic, you're going to generate revenue. So I, I think that's a, a lot of the reason why certain fields are, are bigger, at least in appearance, um, with uh, the distribution of scientific information than others, even though in reality it, it might not be actually on that on that scale in, in terms of scientific production. Um, so I think that's that's a really good point you bring up, and it's something that people need to uh, keep in mind when they're they're going out looking for their information on um, the coronavirus, as everybody should. Uh, you should just keep in mind what are my intentions, what am I looking for, what type of information am I seeking. Otherwise, the search will dictate that for you in a lot of ways. Um, and I think people with Parkinson's who search for research-related news um, for Parkinson's may have already come up against this a little bit, but it's not quite as a hot ticket item as coronavirus, right? So I think this is inflating that risk that you could be um, used to looking on the Internet for news um, and then go to a typical source, and and maybe this is a good opportunity with this emphasis on accurate research and reporting to just reevaluate that source or or give it a double check. Um, Google Scholar, I know Jamie, you recommended that, and I've had nothing but 
success really in using Google Scholar because it's a built-in filter in that search engine for peer-reviewed scholarly articles. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Google Scholar is not the end all. Like, I actually don't ever use Google Scholar for my uh, research or, yeah, my general research at in class. But that's because I, I have access, you know, through school um, to other psychology databases. But, no, you know, you're, you have to pay a, you know, small fortune to, to get full access to, to that many articles. So, I mean, for all intents and purposes, you, you can't go wrong with um, Google Scholar. But I, w- I would also advise if you're just looking for general news, like you have no specific um, Parkinson's disease uh, info you're looking for, then I would start with like a conglomerate of like, you know, a respected um, outlet such as the Michael J. Fox Foundation. If you just want some some general uh, Parkinson's news and information, I, I feel like I would start there first. And then if something piques your interest and they're not covering it, then you can be, begin your search. Yeah, that sounds really reasonable. I know Northwest Parkinson's, when we get out our, our updates on Parkinson's-related research, um, we take a lot of steps to ensure that what we're sharing is um, is well evaluated, but at the same time, as a nonprofit, you know, organization, we are just sharing information, and so it's up to you, the reader, to to basically take on this process, right? Um, mm-hmm. That Jamie and I were outlining here. Um, uh, and you know what? I I'm glad that we had a chance to talk about the online research process, but I was curious. I mean, for someone who does not either have the internet or a computer or any interest in it, and but would like to find some research, can they find? Um, obviously, libraries are closed right now, but um, say in a, a more typical uh, period of time, can they find articles in the, their local library? Absolutely, and if you are fortunate enough to live near a college library. Not only will you have access to their um, online database to some extent, they have the printed articles there. And that actually can be a very rewarding venture. I know that this takes a certain person to go to a college library who is not a student, sign up, and read through journal articles. But I can speak from personal experience. When you do that and you do come across something that's relevant, it can have just the same impact as finishing an awesome book that left an impact on you. I mean, a, a scientific study that sheds insight on, on the nature of the world it can really leave you leave you thinking and pondering just, just as you would of finishing a strong fiction of sorts. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. But it's, it's definitely not common, but it, it, it's out there and it's it's accessible. The, day, the everyday library, I'm not sure I don't spend as much time in like a regular public library, so I can't speak to their wealth of journal articles, but I'm sure they have options as far as the uh, computer goes. I Well, and I actually do think that offline, because I do spend time in a public library, usually, um, I think that, that you can access scientific journal articles. I just don't know if you can take them out of the library, but um, I think regardless our, our uh, conclusion here is that science is is here. Um, it's it's often written for other scientists, but it doesn't mean that you can't. You're not invited to the party. 
Exactly. I think that's a great conclusion. And let me tell you, somebody is myself, you know, it's, I did not, there's a, a, a time in my life where I didn't think I would be able to kind of digest and read through these types of articles as quickly as I do now. Um, and that just goes to show that it's, it's a skill. It's just something, the more, you, the more time you spend, the more you get used to it. Just like with reading um, poems, you get used to the, the, the structure and w what it means to read a poem. Same thing with an article, what it means to read an article, where to find different aspects of the structure. And then you start to realize this is not some uh, barricaded uh, system to protect hidden information, but rather a means to produce reliable scientific information. Yeah, well said. That's pretty good. You know what else I did want to note? Uh, um, poems I mentioned are typically read and written for anybody and everybody. But I would say that when you get into poetry and you're you're into pushing the form, the content, essentially it starts to feel a little bit like the scientific article being written for other scientists where a mm -hmm. poem can be written for other poets and it's building on this long conversation with maybe even dead poets or a conversation about something socio-political or cultural and and there are some levels some barriers sometimes and actually i think just as as with any art form or, I don't know, maybe some people would call scientific uh, revelations artistic. But um, when you're sharing something, there are certain steps you have to take to get to that, that level of reception where you really can receive the piece um, as totally as, as you as an individual can. And, and it's worth the effort. I think that that's actually the bottom line. I want to I wanna take us to, Jamie, is that poems, science, it's worth the effort. I couldn't agree more. Cool. Thanks for calling in and for taking the time out of your day. I know you're, you're working from home just as I am, and this really kind of lifted up the afternoon for me, so I appreciate it. Yes, no problem. Would love to be back on again and uh, discuss maybe a, a concise ar article in some capacity. But yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. Hey, let's do it. Definitely. And uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with him, go check out Brian Enu and Living Legends. If nothing else, Brian Enu and Living Legends. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jamie. Talk to you later. Okay, bye-bye.